0: Hello, welcome back to another week of the Multifaceted Athlete. This episode kicks off a series of interviews I will be doing this month in February that all revolve around eating disorders. So if this topic is hard for you to listen to, if it's triggering in any way, maybe just come back after the month of February. But the reason why I'm going to host a series of interviews around this topic is because In 2023, at least, February was National Eating Disorders Awareness Month. Google apparently says 2024 is not that, but at the end of February is National Eating Disorders Awareness Week. So I wanted to share stories from people who have struggled with an eating disorder or disordered eating so that hopefully we can normalize sharing our stories and hopefully it'll help other people. And this actually... Today, I have my friend and athlete, Clara, on the podcast. She had reached out to me early January, I think it was, um, pitching the idea of sharing her story, and then after we recorded her episode, we got the idea of why don't I try to get more people on the podcast, and I got a bunch of responses on Instagram, so there's going to be like eight or nine episodes coming out this month, I think, and... If you listened to last week's episode, this is some repeat information, but I wasn't sure what order I was going to be releasing everything in. As you can imagine, this is a lot of logistics to keep track of. But anyway, back to today, Clara is on to share her story with an eating disorder, and that eventually turned into RED-S, which is Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, and how it affected her life, her relationships, her running specifically, and yeah, I'm just really happy that Clara was so open and vulnerable and wanted to share her story. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation. If you are struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating, I'll put some resources in the show notes. And always feel free to reach out to myself or Clara if any of this strikes a chord with you, you want to chat about it a bit more. And yeah, without further ado, here is my conversation with Clara. Well, Clara, welcome to this week's episode of The Multifaceted Athlete. I'm excited for this conversation because if someone skipped the intro, we will be talking about some sensitive topics around eating disorders. So if that's hard for you to listen to or triggering in any way, please take care with this episode. But let's start it off with why did you want to come on and share your story in the first place? Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about this opportunity. Um, I um, wanted to talk about this because it's a story that's been a part of my life um, for as long as I can remember. Um, and the more that I have been open about it with people in kind of my close circle, uh, the more I've realized that it is a story that is common to a lot of people's lives, um, especially a lot of women and especially a lot of women athletes. Um, So I um, it's kind of a challenge to myself. I've never spoken really openly or posted on social media or anything like that about kind of my journey um, through perfectionism, eating disorders and all of that. Um, So I'm, I'm challenging myself to be open and vulnerable about that in the hopes that it can Um, inspire and um, maybe touch some other people along the way.
0: Yeah. And we're recording this in January, but like you suggested to me, we're going to release this in February, which is National Eating Disorders Awareness Month. So yeah, I think I know a little bit about your story, but we're going to dive in. And I think it's a really unfortunately common story, especially we're similar in age in our early 30s. So Mm -hmm growing up as we did, it was very common to encounter these things. So when did it first become a problem for you, I guess? Take us back. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's even further back than I
1: necessarily planned to talk about. But I remember the first time that I thought I was fat or had that thought. I was seven years old in second grade. Wow. Um, And I remember it so vividly Um, it was not, it was a really innocuous comment actually, but, um, my babysitter made a comment, um, she had been my babysitter for a year or something like that. And she said, after knowing me for a while, Oh, you've gotten so big. And of course, what she meant was that I had grown because that's what children do. Mm -hmm. Um, but even as a very young child, what I took that to mean was, as a negative thing that I had gotten that. Um, But I would say that my my ideas around that really manifested themselves more in high school. Um, I was always kind of a high achiever and definitely a perfectionist, still a perfectionist. Um, I'm working on it and that typically manifested itself in academics. I took school really seriously. Um, you know, I really wanted to get into a good college and all of that. Um, and my junior year, um, I I think I had always kind of struggled with my body image but there were so many stressors going on in my life that it really started to take control um, at that point. Um, and it's kind of ironic because you know if anyone has any background on eating disorders, they're really about trying to exert control over things that we yeah. don't have control over. And then the really sad irony of it is that it ends up taking control of us. Um, and that was what happened. I think I slowly kind of dug myself into this hole of you know eating less and less and exercising more and more. Um, I wasn't in sports or anything like that. I would. Go by myself to the gym, and um, it became this really lonely and isolating process. Um, because I was always irritable, um, I was always tired, and a lot of things that friends wanted to do with me involved eating, and um, I ended up isolating myself from those. You know, I like it was unthinkable of me for me to go and get a slice of pizza with my friends after school. Um, and I, I really succumbed to a lot of the pressures surrounding me and um, was, was in therapy at the time, not for that specifically. Um, but I, I finally realized that I had a problem and talked to my therapist about some of the symptoms I was having. And she said the next time that I went to see her that she had almost hospitalized me. Mm-hmm. um, for some of the things that I had shared because I, you know, when you don't feed your body enough, there's kind of a total system breakdown that happens. Um, and I guess some of the things I mentioned really raised a red flag for her. Um, and then luckily I, um, you know, even though I was feeling that pressure, I was able to work with, a, a different therapist, a specialized therapist to kind of reorient my relationship around food. Um, and then I would say that things went dormant for a couple years
0: after that. So in high school, when before you yourself noticed there was a problem, did anyone around you were they like, Hey Clara, I noticed something's going on or I'm worried about you? Did any of that happen? Um, that's a good question. And the answer actually is no. Um,
1: I think I went to great lengths to hide. Um, what I was, what I was doing and what I wasn't doing. Um, because I, I think as a perfectionist sort of, you know, I knew about eating disorders, but felt that I, they couldn't happen to me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I thought that was like someone else's problem. And I sort of tricked even myself into believing that, um, you know, maybe I was not on the, the best path, but that it wasn't like that bad. Um, I think also I um, am a person that naturally carries muscle. Um, and so the result of starving myself wasn't necessarily a huge visible loss in pounds. It was more like loss of muscle tone and things like that. And so um, I think my secrecy was aided by, by that, that it just wasn't super visible and, and obvious. Um, and I go back and forth with, you know, would it have been better had it been super noticeable, had people talked to me or tried to bring it up with me? And to be honest, I I don't think it would have changed anything um, because at least for me, the way that I viewed myself and the the path that I was on didn't have anything to do with reality. It was this thing that I had created in my mind that I needed to do and so uh, you know if someone had said like i'm really worried about you i don't know it may have even driven me further in in that direction
0: yeah that was going to be my next question cuz i remember i similar to you junior years when things got really bad and like my mom said something and i just like got really angry about it mm-hmm. so i was similar to what you were just saying it's like it's very challenging for the people around us if they do notice something because it's hard to know what will help, especially because mm-hmm. I think what you mentioned before about like you started bringing it up in therapy that to me, you can correct me, signifies that like on some level that you recognized within yourself there was a problem and that you wanted help, but like no one else can help you get to that point. Like you can only yeah. get yourself there. Yeah. Yeah. Um- And I think
1: that is something that's really tricky about disordered eating and, and challenging relationships with food is that it appears on the surface to be so simple, you know, like just eat more calories Mm -hmm. or, you know, eat a more balanced diet or whatever it might be. Um, So it kind of masquerades as this simple solution when really it's so deeply psychological and often the root of it is not about food at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think the comment back in the day, probably still now, I just don't see it as much thankfully. The common mm-hmm. like response was always like just eat a burger. It's like that yeah. is the least helpful thing. Also, like burgers aren't the most calorically dense thing in the world either, <laughs> you know. I know. They have just the <laughs> reputation, I guess. Yeah, burgers and pizza, which is interesting. Um so then I guess, did it help talking to your therapist? Because you said it went dormant for a couple years after that. Yeah, I, I think it did. Um, I, I
1: worked with someone who specialized in disordered eating and eating disorders. Um, and I had never had someone force me to uncover and say out loud what was going on beneath and behind all of this stuff. Um, and it helped me see, um, you know, some other things about my life and my personality that were maybe contributing to this need for control around food specifically. Um, so I do, I'm a huge proponent of therapy. Um, and especially when you find someone who is really an expert in that area, I think it can make a huge difference.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Um, so Going back, this is kind of a little bit before what we were mm-hmm. just talking about, but had you always been a perfectionist even before seventh grade when you first got the inkling that uh, your body was not what you wanted it to be based on a comment? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, Yes, I, I think absolutely. Um, and I view that as, a, you know, it's served me in a lot of ways and it's not served me in a lot of other ways. Um, but I, I have always really strived to do things to the best of my abilities. And I think the, the issue is that I sometimes have a, an idea of what I should be capable of doing that is, um, not super realistic. And, uh, that's where, of course it gets me into trouble, but yeah, I've always, I mean, I've always been kind of a, uh, an over-functioner and, and somebody who's really interested in putting their best foot
0: forward. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people who do end up struggling with disordered eating or eating disorders, that is generally a personality trait that we all share, unfortunately. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
0: So then once you left high school, you said it was dormant for a couple years. Mm -hmm. Why? Why? Why do you think it went dormant? (laughs) That's a
1: good question. I think – I mean, I sort of touched on it. I think my junior year of high school was just one of the more stressful years of my life at that point. Um, you know, it was, it was thinking about what the future was going to look like in terms of college. I was in a long distance relationship. Um, my dad had moved away, you know, so there were a lot of things going on. And so I think a little bit of that um, resolved itself um, just with the passage of time. Life got a little bit easier for a while Um, and you know, I don't know actually reflecting now if dormant is the right word, but I do think it, uh, it really changed shape, um, Mm -hmm. the way I, I viewed my body, um, for a while after high school, I was very particular, um, and it wouldn't have risen, you know, to the level of an eating disorder, but I was very particular about what I ate. I went through a lot of, it was gluten-free for a while. I was gluten-free and vegetarian for a while. I kind of um flexed back and forth between all of these diets. Um I never, you know, went on a diet necessarily with the intention of losing weight, um, but there was still that element of control, just much less so. And I think part of it was the therapy and having some tools to actually confront those distorted beliefs. And um uh and part of it was just that life got a little bit
0: easier. That makes sense. The diet thing is so tricky because it's so accepted in our society for, especially women, to be on Mm -hmm, any diet at any given time. And like I did similar things. I've been like, I've done paleo, I've done gluten free, vegetarian, keto. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of them were like from a healthier place. Some of them were definitely not. Um, But yeah, definitely just want to call that out. That that can be a version of disordered eating that's very socially acceptable.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's very tricky sometimes to tease them apart.
0: Yeah. Do you remember anything that was going on in society at the time that, like, uh, influenced your struggles with food, whether in high school or college or closer to today? Mm, That's a good question. I don't know if I could put my
1: finger on anything specific, any big cultural event, um, but I do feel that my opinions were very strongly influenced by just the way that we talk about bodies and, and women's bodies in particular. I think it is somehow so acceptable to comment on how women look. Um, And I consider myself to be a pretty in-touch, like kind of an empath. Um, I like, I pick up on things, I pay attention. Um, And so even if I didn't have negative body talk necessarily coming toward me, um, I noticed it toward other people and just like how we talk about people with, you know, body types that maybe don't fit into the traditional idea of what is attractive. yeah. I mean, I did have, I'm sure a lot of people have, have had this experience. I had a couple of like coaches in high school tell me like, Oh, you should be on the, um, like the track team or you should join cross country or whatever. Like, you know, you really just have the type the body type for it, which is, I mean, just wildly inappropriate. I, I think for yeah a grown man to be telling a 14 year old girl that she has the right body type to do anything. Um, because that's not true. There isn't a body type. Um, and also nobody asked for your opinion
0: on that. Yes, it's just my two cents there. <laughs> uh, well, so in the spirit of that, not someone commenting on your body out of <laughs> line, uh, why didn't you join track or cross country? Because you didn't start running until much, much later. Correct. Yes. Um, I was a theater kid. Mm -hmm. Um, so I
1: spent all of middle and high school, um, in plays and musicals, actually went to performing arts school for my senior year. I went to a boarding school, um, which was, that's a whole thing in and of itself. But yeah, I was just more focused, um, on that. And my, had that, um, outlet for my perfectionist tendencies. Um, and, um. Yeah, then it was when I went to college, I, it just didn't, it wasn't really sustainable to continue taking part in theater. And that's kind of when I picked up with some more athletic pursuits.
0: Yeah. And then let's dive into when you got into running, because that, that ties very closely with your perfectionism Mm -hmm. and then obviously food is a big part of sports. So Mm -hmm. when did you get into running and then tell us about your first foray into racing? Yeah. Um, I got into
1: running by accident. Um, and I actually, I never thought I would enjoy running. Um, and I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I had been on a run before. Um, it was kind of popular in the theater community to like turn our noses up at physical activity. So I think I bought into that a little bit. Um, but I, I got into running by accident. I was climbing at the time, um, doing a lot of that. My um, you know after graduating uh, and a little bit in college too. And I injured one of my fingers um, and decided that I needed a a physical outlet. Um, and so I just decided to sign up for a half marathon. Um, unfortunately, my half marathon was scheduled for uh, March. 13th 2020. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um so it didn't happen. Um nor did any other races that I signed up for uh for the next like year or so. Um so I got into running and then it was a little over a year until I actually had my first race. Um and it was a marathon on a trail. Um I like to jump in both feet first <laughs> to everything. Um and I mean, I'll have to go back and explain kind of what my relationship was with running, but I, I just ended up with all of this kind of initial success in my first marathon, um, I ended up in third place for women. Um, and I think like 13th overall, um, which was a huge surprise to me because you know I had been training during the pandemic. I had never been on a run with another person um, I remember having a little bit of a breakdown the week of my marathon because I wasn't even sure that I could run 26 miles. Um, and so it was a, a really delightful surprise. Um, and I would say that was where things started to get really challenging in terms of my relationship with running. Um, because now there was this expectation associated with it, um, and this expectation of success and excellence even. Um, And pretty soon after that, I, um, you know, signed up for more races and um, started this string of injuries and um, honestly, overtraining tendencies and, and things like that.
0: Yeah. And how was your relationship with food throughout when you started running to up to this race? Yeah. Um, Up to the race, I, I
1: wasn't really giving much thought to food at all, Hmm. Um, which I think was a good and a bad thing. I think I didn't, I didn't really give it much consideration in that I didn't eat more Mm -hmm. um, to compensate for the amount of training that I was doing. Um, But I was not, I was not consciously restricting or, trying to cut back or eat clean or anything like that. Um, So kind of a a mixed bag there. Not a super unhealthy approach to eating, but also not the healthiest either.
0: Yeah, I think that's super common just when anyone gets into running because, I mean, I think for a lot of reasons, one, especially for women, we're not really told to eat more when we exercise more. (laughs) It's usually Mm -hmm. like you exercise to lose weight. And to lose weight, you also eat less. So why would you Mm -hmm. eat more if you're exercising? That kind Mm -hmm. of thing, which hopefully is changing, at least in the running world, uh, for those of us who are running for performance, I should say, because those Mm -hmm. (laughs) those don't go hand in hand. Um, So then after that race, you said you had a slew of injuries. Um, How did your relationship with running and food progress from there? we met shortly after that point too. (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
1: I started working with you pretty soon after, um, my race. I, um, I mean, like I said, now there was this, there was this expectation associated with running. Um, and you know, I hadn't known before that I was competitive or, you know, could really even compare myself to other runners. And then I think I started take it really, really seriously. Um, I, I was actually injured from my marathon. I got an iliopsoas, I don't know, some kind of strain or whatever, um, from all the hills, um, because I hadn't Mm -hmm. done hills at all. Um, and I remember having this really desperate thought spiral about that injury that, oh, you know, I want to keep running. I don't want to lose my fitness. And so I really pushed myself and trained through that injury. And as a result, it took, I mean, it was, you know, it could have resolved itself probably in a couple of weeks. we will never know because that's not what I did. Um, But I got back onto it less than a week later and it took months of intervention and rest and And targeted physical therapy, unfortunately, to get back to a place where I could run at all again, um, much less put in higher mileage um, like I was doing during my marathon training.
0: Yeah. And do you think that – well, I guess how was your mindset during this time? Was it really wrapped up in like the perfectionism? Um, Like was that at full force at this point? I think so. And I,
1: you know, I mean, I, I trained and I continued to train initially because I loved running. Um, It just, it felt so freeing to me and allowed me the space to really process and think through a lot of things that were going on in my life. And when I started to laser focus in on the performance that I'd had at my first race and the performance that I wanted to have um, and that I expected of myself, I stopped really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it became this thing that I had to do um, instead of something that I loved. And of course I enjoyed it less because it was painful as well. I was training on an injury. Um, So the perfectionism definitely, it didn't become, I you know, I'm going on a run because I want to. It became, I have to go on this run.
0: Yeah. And that's such a tricky place to be in. Uh, During this time, did your eating disorder rebound, I guess is the best word, since you couldn't control what was going on in your running? Yeah. I'm trying to think about eating in particular
1: during that time, Um, because that would have been the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think... um, again, it wasn't the conscious restriction. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily classify it as an eating disorder. Um, but I think, um, I, I definitely wasn't getting enough calories and I started to see some symptoms of that. Um, the most annoying being really disruptive GI issues when I ran. And so I started getting really particular about, eating around my runs, which to some extent is normal. I mean, it's not great to have a bowl of meaty pasta before you go on a long run, (laughs) you know. um, But I would, I got really restrictive with when I would eat, which would sometimes mean, you know, uh, it's 12 o'clock. I would normally have lunch, but I want to run in an hour. So I won't have lunch now because that will ruin my run. And then when I would get back from the run, sometimes, you know, you're not super hungry after that. And then I was like, oh, well, it's already three. I should just wait till dinner. So it was kind of those rationalizations. And now that I'm describing it, maybe it does rise a little bit above the level of just, you know, an unhealthy relationship with food or disordered eating. But I I never remember consciously having the thought at that time, like that I needed to be eating less calories. It just kind of rationalized itself based on my lifestyle
0: yeah and that's fair i think that is also very common i think one thing that you mentioned that people don't realize is when you are under fueling uh like gi issues can be a side effect of that and it's not always about like what you're eating it's about you know not giving your body enough especially for us runners when we are in peak training um yeah yeah so that's a good thing to keep in mind for anyone out there um but yeah I think what you just described is so relatable about like (laughs) scheduling food around runs I sometimes this has nothing to do with what we're talking about really but that's partially why I like to go in the morning because you don't have to think as much because it's like oh I can have like a snack go run and then it's like Mm -hmm. food for the rest of the day is normal Mm -hmm. which you know now that I'm saying that that could also not be the healthiest thing, like thinking of like that. But yeah, it's challenging because you don't want, you know, you don't want the sloshing in your stomach. You don't want Mm -hmm. the GI issues that you had during the run, but you also know you need fuel for the run, around the run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, you're a very busy adult (laughs) too. (laughs) It's true. Yes.
1: Have had a lot going on, especially these last couple of years since we met. yeah, um, yeah, and I think at the time, I didn't realize that I was actually kind of viewing the solution as the problem in terms of like eating before runs. I just assumed that I could take care of G i stuff if i if I didn't eat, if I didn't have anything in my stomach. Um, And it was only much later after doing a lot of research and talking to a lot of different people that I realized, oh, no, you know, this is your body reacting to already being at a deficit anyway. Um, So in an attempt to solve the problem, I was actually making it worse without knowing it.
0: Yeah, which, again, super common, especially because there are so many things that can affect GI issues or like instigate them. And it's not always under-fueling, but I feel like that's one that is not taken into consideration like almost ever unless Mm -hmm. you are someone who specializes in like seeing cases like that and it's like more top of mind. Um, So I think that's kind of a good segue into when you first heard about Red S and then kind of your experience trying to get doctors (laughs) to listen to you. Um, So tell the listeners. well. I guess first, let's talk about what is Red S? When did you first hear about it? And why did learning about that um, pique your interest based on what was going on? Yeah, the first I heard of it was actually quite a while before
1: I thought it was something that ever might apply to me. Um, Red S, for those of you that don't know, stands for relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, and it is a condition that is the result of what's called low energy availability, um, which put more simply just means that you're either um, putting out too much effort or not taking in enough fuel or some combination of the two. Um, The first I heard of it was on a podcast. It was kind of this, it was a climbing podcast Hmm. um, with I think Hazel Finley and someone else, I can't remember. Um, And it was an athlete describing her experience and how she um, had been on birth control and then went off of it and her period didn't come back. That is a huge symptom, like one of the the flagship symptoms of Red S. Um, And she went through, you know, a whole battery of tests to try and figure it out and and finally did. Um, And eventually to get herself well, had to stop she's a professional climber um, and she had to stop engaging um, in sport because it just wasn't, her balance wasn't coming back. Um, And something that really struck me about her story was that she was not, she did not appear to be frail or thin. Um, And when she was in the depths of her condition, she actually came very close to sending um, one of the hardest routes of her career. Um, So she's performing at a high level, um, which I think was the part that really intrigued me um, because this idea that there can be something going on that doesn't make itself obvious um, was kind of fascinating and a little bit scary. Um, So, yeah, I mean, but I think I listened to that podcast in... Maybe it was in 2020, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't start to think that I could be on that spectrum or that that could relate to me until probably 2022. Um, and to um, be totally open about it, I um, was without my my own period for quite a long time um, before I before I started to think that you know something was really was really wrong i it was almost um a year without mm-hmm. it before i started to really pursue um medical answers <sighs> and the pursuit of answers this is a this is another topic for a, a whole <laughs> podcast as what it's like to be a woman interfacing with the american medical system what it's like to be a female athlete associated with the yeah um, but I did not have a great experience with doctors. Um, I had a lot of doctors not take me seriously. Um, I do have a hormonal IUD, and and sometimes that can lead to loss of a period. Um, but I tried to tell every doctor that I saw, and I think it was four or five when all was said and done. Mm. Um, I tried to tell some of them, you know, I've had this device for five years. And I've had a regular period the whole time. Um, and then it stopped. So I think something is going on. And then I had other doctors, you know, so doctors said, Oh, it's normal. You know, you have an IgU. Um I had other doctors say um, that, you know, you're a runner. So mm-hmm. that's just what happens. Um, like very normalizing. Um, and then, you know, I was Starting to have all of these other symptoms as well. Like, really, that was the least of them. Um, I was dealing with really, really persistent fatigue. Um, I'm a morning person and I, I couldn't get out of bed in the mornings. Um, you know, I was irritable, um, you know, lots, lots and lots of things going on. And so I would try to tell doctors this. And I actually had one tell me, she literally looked at me and said, Well, you look healthy. Um, so, so, there must be nothing wrong, was, was the implication. Um, and I recognize that, like, I, you know, there's some privilege in saying that too. I, I know that a lot of people have different struggles with the medical system where doctors look at them and say the exact opposite based on nothing more than a glance. Um, but I think the root of the issue is the same just this idea that we can, we can, we think we can judge anyone's health by. The way that they look. Um yeah, and I tried a lot of different doctors too. I tried kind of a more naturalist, um, like integral health whole body thing. And she prescribed me like eight different supplements to start <laughs> taking. Um, I'm trying to think what else I tried. Um, and I think the it all started to lead back to this idea of Redus and And the idea that I like might not be eating enough or might be training too much for the amount I was eating or, um, or all of that. But it took, it took quite a while for me to get there, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember we started talking about it sometime in 2022. And then you would tell me when you go to the doctors, be like, they're not concerned about it. And I was like, based on what you're telling me, I'm concerned about it. I'm not a medical professional, (laughs) but like, especially like you knew in yourself something was not right. Yes. And it's just yeah. like very discouraging for everyone to just be dismissing you. I think there was one point you got blood work too. And one of them was yes. like, your levels are normal, which is yeah. a common thing for athletes because they usually go off gen pop numbers, which athletes tend to need, depending on the um, biomarker, either higher or lower than general mm-hmm. population. Specifically, mm-hmm. I think ferritin was the big one. Yes. We were trying yeah. to <laughs> get answers about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I did
1: eventually, I had several blood tests done um, and it was a pretty frustrating experience and felt, it made me question myself too, because there's nothing that's showing up in this blood work, you know, as if blood work were the only measurement that we can use for health. I mean, I know mm-hmm. there's a lot to it, um, but I I did finally have one doctor who measured my ferritin, um, which I think- at least she said is not typically in your, your normal panel. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was, it was very low. Um, but that was really the only answer that I got. So, you know, I took some iron supplements and, and all of that. Um, but I think actually the biggest wake up call was when I got, um, an in body test done, which Mm -hmm. ironically is not done by a medical professional. Um, it's just a, a scale for, Anybody who doesn't know, it's a scale that measures um, your, not just your weight, but your body composition as well. Um, So you stand with bare feet on this platform and hold these like metal rods in your hands, and um, it sends electrical waves through your body to measure um, what your fat and muscle and um, water composition is. Um, And that was, I think that was in like spring of 2022. So, like at least eight, nine months into not having a period feeling super fatigued all the time. Um, and it came back that my body fat percentage was not just low, but like l- almost lethally low.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that, I think that was, a that was something that I couldn't ignore or explain in any other way. Um, and I think that, that actually, began the harder part of the journey because I was confronted with like oh something is wrong and it's it's not something really uncontrollable that's happening within my body it's something that I'm kind of doing to myself whether I know it or not um and that's when a lot of feelings started to come up again around weight and and body image and and things like that was yeah. was after realizing that um oh this is something that I that like I need to make a change about and soon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it's just so disappointing that you had to go through so many doctors and your wake up call was doing the in body, which like, what if you hadn't done that? You know, so like the really yeah. scary thing is in general, like red S isn't, I feel like for the most part, obviously I'm not an expert in this area. In the most part, I feel like it's unintentional. It's not intentionally under fueling and having low energy availability it's just kind of what happens when you ramp up training and don't adjust your nutrition or like you don't fuel within your runs as much as you should and especially around um especially with like the lack of appetite after long runs which is super common for runners mm-hmm. and then the normalization of runners don't get periods or athletes in general i should say don't mm-hmm. get period. That's it's a normal thing. It's normal to feel tired all the time. You're training hard. It's normal not to be able to get up in the morning, even though your your normal is being a normal person or a morning person, right? So yeah, right. it's a frustrating system to navigate.
1: Yeah, it is, and um, I mean i I still even navigated it with a lot of privilege, you know, and it, and yeah. found it extremely frustrating, like. I just shudder to think, like, had I been less resourced, you know, like, had I not had health insurance or had I been a person of color or, you know, someone who doesn't present as, like, stereotypically healthy, I just, I think that my experience would have been infinitely harder, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I probably would have given up because I actually did give up several times and just sort of resigned myself to okay, well, I guess I'm just not a morning person anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, or I guess I'm just tired or I guess I'm not going to perform and put out these times or effort levels that I was used to um, before. So yeah, it's, it was a, it was a frustrating experience to navigate for sure.
0: Yeah. So then when you did have the wake up call, um, can you talk a little bit more about the, you touched on like the thoughts around weight and body image and all that, how did that come back and how was managing that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I
1: got to a point where the question was like, do I want to look a certain way or do I want to perform a certain way? And I, I think mistakenly sort of viewed that as a, um, like a trade off. Like I could either have one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, and i it's funny because you know, this whole time I've been saying i was I was not consciously restricting, I was not on a diet, um, it just sort of happened. But then, when the evidence was put before me being like you need to gain weight and not just weight but fat, um, I realized that I was terrified to gain weight and to gain fat, and I had become attached to the body that I was in. Um, and I, even though the, all evidence was pointing toward the opposite of this, I worried that gaining weight would make me less of an athlete or make me less able to perform. Um, you know, which is, it's so silly after having told the story and said it out loud, because, I mean, it's so clear that the exact opposite was true, that like it was the lack of weight and fat that was really detrimental to, um, you know, my performance of my life as a whole. Um, but I think just those external messages, not just, you know, from being someone who identifies as a woman, but also um, as, as an athlete, like it's it was just so hard to like un tingle all of those things
0: yeah and i don't think it's silly at all i feel like it it is scary gaining weight and it's like you might logically know that that's what you need to do but believing that you'll still be like the same athlete it does take a level of like a leap of faith and you kind of can't know until you do gain the weight and then you're like oh Mm-hmm. I feel better when I'm running. I feel stronger, which means mm-hmm. I can perform better. but like when you're just starting it's it seems like this insurmountable thing It's like it can't possibly be true, especially with some of the examples that we see in like professional sports and like I mean there's been a lot of professional female runners coming out talking about their eating disorders and how they were winning they were at the top of the field at the time when it was the worst, so it's like mm-hmm. I mean, the ones that have come out, I'm thinking mostly of like Alio and she just like Mm -hmm. made the world cross-country team, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So like she's showing that you can still perform at a high level in recovery, but it is really hard to seeing the opposite when you're like, you suspect someone might be struggling and you're like, but they're running really fast. Yeah, and I I did have some of
1: that. I think like when I first stopped, having my period, I, that was the first race that I won. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and so what do you do with that information? Like, how do you kind of reconcile those things? And I, um, am such a nerd about it, but I just read, um, Lauren Fleshman's book that came out about a year ago. It's called for a girl. Um, and she really, she talks a lot about like her kind of relationship with running over the course of her, you know, young, like her childhood and adult life, um, and talks a lot, like calls out a lot of the, um, the talk around women's bodies in sport. And, um, she talks about how she would see like people performing at the top and like, you know, you could see them like lose weight and kind of like then disappear from the running world shortly after like setting records or winning races, because it's, you know it's not sustainable
0: yeah yeah I just remember when she was talking about specifically at I think it's the high school level with the footlocker championship like the winners of that some of them they win that and then you never hear from them again and it's like what happened yeah because that's high school they're so young I know I know it was oh I that book cannot recommend it highly enough it was so
1: so eye-opening to read Mm -hmm. um as somebody who joined sports a lot later in life, like I, you know, I didn't live through that, that experience, but um, I mean, I already, like I mentioned earlier, struggled with, with body image and eating. So I can't imagine having layered another expectation on top of that, like performing as a, you know, a world-class athlete.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And especially coming from like male coaches who, Mm -hmm. Similar to what you were saying about your high school, the high school track coach at your school telling you you should coach for the team just because of how you looked. Just right. like, I mean, imagine a coach being like, you need to lose five pounds before the next race in order to run whatever time. Like, wild. I know. I know. Yeah. Well, that's depressing. Um, <laughs> back to your story, uh, which is still kind of. We're at a sad point, kind of <laughs> when you're trying to change things um, so that was towards the end ish of twenty twenty two roughly mid. um yeah, I would say yeah mid twenty twenty two
1: um, and then it's it's not a good excuse, but even with this wake up call, um, I think I still. I didn't recognize how much of a change I was needing to make. And I was really busy in life at the time. I am in grad school right now. I have been for the past three years. Cannot wait for that to be done. Um, And I was also working kind of a work study position through my university. And I was working another job outside of that. Um, And so, like I said, it's not a good excuse, but I think, I knew that a change needed to happen. Um, and I just didn't really, I, I like didn't really know how to make it even. Um, so then, gosh, I mean, I think I was in that limbo for a couple of months. And it was probably my second wake up call because I apparently needed to was when I got a stress fracture um, last spring. Um, because I kind of, had thought that I was doing better you know I had the thought in my mind of eating more being kinder to my body things like that um but I don't I think I was kind of talking the talk without walking the walk um and then when I got the stress fracture I was like oh you know another alarm bell there um because stress fractures are another um telltale sign of of red ass um yeah and that's when I, I think I really started to make some changes. I, you know, was forced to take two months off of running. Um, I wore a boot for like a full month. Um, and then I started working with a nutritionist. Um, yeah. So that would have been like the second half of 2023 that I was kind of in that process.
0: Yeah. I just want to touch on something you mentioned that you had the first wake up call. You knew you needed to make a change and you didn't really know what to do which yeah. I also think is common because, I mean, one, RED-S is becoming more talked about, but it's not like – there's not concrete guidelines on how to come back from it really unless mm-hmm. you are able to work with like a registered dietitian who specializes in it, Um, which those are not cheap. Uh, right. That kind of thing. Like the general – like I couldn't even tell you other than eat more. <laughs> Right. what would be – like how would you go about fixing that, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think part of the difficulty with that is that it is
1: – it's really personal. You know, all, all bodies function differently and probably everybody sort of enters into Red S in a different way. You know, like you can get to that same deficit by running 100 miles a week or, you know, by running 20 miles a week depending on how many calories you're using to, to feed into that and to supplement it. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that was really tricky for me. And I was, I was really stubborn for a while about not, not being willing to really cut back or change my running in any way, because I, I mean, I love it and it's a, a huge, you know, coping skill and stress release for me. And then I think I kind of in fits and starts, would try to eat more, um, but even then, and this is something I've I've just been learning recently, like it's not just about calories. It's not just about macros. Like you also need to be considering the vitamins and minerals that you're taking in. Um, mm. You know, so I think in my beginning stages of trying to eat more, I was like, okay, I'll just like I'll let myself have a Big Mac every once in a while, but in terms of a food that's going to like fuel and nourish me, I mean, Mm -hmm. the calories are there for the Big Mac. um, And I do, do love an occasional Big Mac and I'm going to (laughs) admit it, Um, but it, you know, in terms of like a food that's going to bring me into this recovery phase and out of the red S um, you know, I just didn't know um, really how to approach it.
0: Yeah. And I think Just touching on what you said about your multitude of jobs, lots of stress, like for you eating more is kind of a big lifestyle change because you had to be so much more intentional about like planning what you were going to eat, when you were going to eat Um, because you know when you're busier it's easier to forget to eat or push off your meals Mm -hmm. and then like not many people want to be eating the bulk of their calories in like a one hour time frame after work, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so then it's like, I just, yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Like, how was that? Because that is extremely challenging. It sounds easy, yes, eat more, yeah. add in a snack, but it's like, not, yeah,
1: I had a, a tremendous amount of
0: difficulty with that. I'm, <laughs> I'm
1: so, I'm a, I'm a little bit absent minded, um, just as a person, and and so even in the healthiest relationship I've had with food, I still sometimes would forget to eat. Um, I think the biggest game changer for me was that I set alarms, um, first on my phone and now I have them on my watch that go off every two to three hours, same time every day. Um, just to remind me that I need to have a snack. Um, that was probably the single biggest change. Um, but really frustratingly, I, I think the change was an accumulation of a lot of little things that I did differently. Um, I started sneaking in calories. Like sometimes I'll put olive oil in my coffee, um, Mm. which is actually really good. Highly recommend. Um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, I would make sure to choose, uh, like full fat, um, yogurt instead of reduced fat and, and things like that. Um, so like a lot of little kind of cheats that way. Um, but I I don't think that things really demonstrably shifted until I just like slowed down in my life, which, yeah, would have been, I think, like the end of summer 2023. I finally got into mm-hmm. routine with my internship, which is essentially just, you know, like a nine to five job. Um, so I was able to be a little bit more settled, cook and meal prep a lot more, Um, and that helped a ton.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember around then you started to feel a little less fatigued, which was nice. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, I still, the fatigue I think is the last, it's going to be the last to let go. Um, I still have that a little bit. Um, but I've gotten to the point now where I'm not snoozing my alarms in the morning anymore, so that's a huge victory for me yeah. <laughs> I, um I never used to i mean I don't know I just am a morning person I would never ever snooze my alarms before um I kind of got and dug myself into this hole, and um within like the last couple of months, I finally am able to like wake up when my alarm goes off, which is it's a small thing but it feels like just a huge victory
0: yeah I would say it's a huge victory especially because that started almost two years ago yeah at this point like that's a long time to feel tired constantly yeah or I think yes two years ago because it would have been beginning of 2022 that I
1: started to really um really feel bad
0: yeah yeah and since your second wake-up call you've run your first ultra yes You got first place at one of our local 5Ks again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So talk a little bit about where you are now with Red S, relationship with running, actually relationship with cross training too because you have fully embraced cross training, (laughs) which I think is really helpful in this because it's like letting go of some of the running because cross training for anyone who isn't aware is like, a lot less stressful on your body. Usually, obviously, depends what you're doing on the cross training, <laughs> but impact-wise, it's a lot easier on the body, especially like for someone who's had a stress fracture. Um, yeah, yeah, and really, straight up to food. So, yeah, um,
1: I would say I'm in a much healthier place um, now. My kind of intention or quote that I'm trying to have carry me through this year is. Um, Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Um, So I am kind of trying to release expectations around, you know, hitting an exact mileage or an exact pace or an exact number of runs per week, Um, you know, because it doesn't really matter in the long run. What matters is like the bulk and the totality of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, I've kind of experimented and been um, committing a little bit more to cross training. Um, I've gone swimming a couple times, which is just wow, the hardest thing <laughs> I've ever done. <laughs> it's so hard <laughs> it's so hard, and i am I am a negatively buoyant person. I cannot float. <laughs> um, so that's my excuse for well, part of my excuse for why it's so hard. Um yeah, but I've done a little bit of that. um and i I think it's less like the minutiae of what I'm doing day-to-day and more like the attitude with which I'm approaching things, which is um, that I really want to, I don't want to just like wring myself dry for every drop of performance I can possibly put out. I want to find a way to sustainably and enjoyably engage with the sport of running Um, and with that kind of guiding value, I think... A lot more has fallen into place, like the cross training. Um, I've been lifting a little bit more as well, um, doing some strength work to, you know, hopefully try and prevent injury. Um, yeah, so I think I'm in a better place with food. I'm in a better place. I um, just got a cookbook from one of my coworkers that's called "Eat uh, Run Fast, Eat Slow." I always say it opposite and it's like, no, I don't want to run <laughs> slow and eat fast. Thank you very much. Um, but that's really nice. I actually sat down and read the beginning of the cookbook and was like, oh my God, where was this two years ago? Yeah. Um, because it's written by, you know, one of the most decorated American um women runners of all time. Um and she uh talks about how she eats healthy fats and you know, fuels and really like, she, does away with the whole idea of like diet culture and less is more and things like that. So, I'm happy to have it in my life now. I've been making a lot of recipes <laughs> from that. Um, and like I said earlier, I think just with starting a consistent um, work routine, the snacks have really fallen into place, and like eating at regular intervals has gotten a lot easier too.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is that cookbook the one by Shalene? <laughs> That's what I thought. It's uh, so good. Emma Coburn has a good one too. Okay. I haven't
1: heard yeah. of that one, but I'll
0: have to check it out. I'm like so nerdy about this cookbook recently. Yeah, I'll send it to you. I have there's another one I like. I think it's by Scratch Labs. It's a bunch of like I'll just I'll have to send it to you. I don't fully remember the details, but it's mm-hmm. like packable stuff. Oh nice. So like I remember during one ultra training season, I made like the rice balls that they had in there. Yeah. To experiment with fueling. um. But those would also be like a great snack throughout the day mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um. And one thing we didn't really dive into was like we worked a bit on your mindset with racing. Yeah. And like not focusing so much on the outcome and fo- focusing more on what you could control and having a good time and then the results would fall into place based on that. Yeah. Yeah, I had a big turning point with that.
1: Um, my first race back after my stress fracture. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I can laugh about it now. It's
0: know, it was, it was a about. bad one.
1: <laughs> it was bad. It was really bad um, because I I went into it with this idea of like that I needed to be excellent, you know, yeah. to prove I don't I don't think to other people. I think it was to prove to myself that like I was back, I was better, I was healthy. Um, And I remember in the first mile of the race, it's like this long uphill, it's at a ski resort. Um, So it's, you know, this long uphill to start. Um, And I remember feeling the discomfort and then thinking like, oh, I'm not actually a runner. I thought I was a runner, but all of those other things must have been a fluke um and i i'm bad at this um and by i don't know by some divine intervention i did not um drop out but i did text my partner like maybe at mile 2 and told him i'm going to dfl um <laughs> because i just felt like the whole of the United States was passing me on that trail. Like I just I was so I felt so slow. And you know, part of that was by my own design. I think I had kind of positioned myself toward the front of a larger mm-hmm. pack. And so, you know, I was um learning my lesson there. Um but I I think I was able to reflect after the race like, oh, you know, that there was some physical discomfort for sure. Um, I also I threw up like multiple times before the race, but it was because Mm. of nerves, like because of the pressure I was putting on myself. Um, And yeah, that was a that was something I did not want to repeat. Um, And so I did a lot of thinking about you know why why do I race? Um, What what does this do for me? Um, What do I enjoy about it? And came to the conclusion that um, I just couldn't go in with a thought of like how I wanted to place or a time that I wanted to finish in. Um, and I don't know, maybe that will shift at some point, but going in with that mindset, I um, had two much more successful races. Um, so I at least think for the time being, it's important for me to really put like the values-based goals in there and not like time-based and not placement-based because um, it takes a lot of the enjoyment out of what I'm doing for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest shift that I've seen is that we still generally have a time goal that you're aiming for, but it's not what you care about the most going into a race. Mm -hmm. It's like, I would like to hit this, but I would more so like to nail my fueling, say hi to people, have fun, Mm -hmm. try my hardest, give it my all, that kind of thing, which are like so much easier to accomplish. I well, they are things you can control to accomplish versus Yeah. Yeah. Especially times in ultra races. Anything can happen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think I um I don't know, it just
1: like it was hard to have faith at the beginning that like if you really go in with this mindset of like, okay, you know, what if my goal is to really give it the best that I have instead of my goal is to podium, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the results will come. Um, And I think I, I think I saw that in like, I'm thinking of the three races that I had kind of shortly after um, my lovely half marathon in Steamboat. (laughs) Um, And it, yeah, it just made it a much more pleasant racing experience. And um, again, it was like something that I had control over is, you know, how do I deal with negative thoughts when they pop up? If they pop up, how do I, you know, show up for myself? Um, And I don't know, I actually remember in my 50K, um, I did have a little bit of a blow up there, um, but it was a physical problem, not a mental one. Um, and at the first aid station where I had my partner and my friend and my dad there, it was so special. Um, and I got to the aid station and I was like, you know, putting on sunscreen and they were swapping out my water bottles. And my friend was like, do you want to know what place you're in? Um, and without even having to deliberate, I was like, you know, I don't. Um, and it was, a I I think one of the proudest moments of that entire race for me, um, because I was able to just like be in the moment and like ask for the best of myself without worrying about how my best was going to compare to other people's best, mm-hmm. um, still a work in progress for sure, probably a lifelong work in progress. But, um, I think now that I've kind of proven to myself that that's a more effective method for, for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I would say for most athletes and I think one thing to like just tack on to that is like letting go of the time goals isn't to say that you won't ever be disappointed with where you place in a race. Like those, Mm -hmm. you can be happy with your performance. You can be disappointed with where you landed in the field. Like those can go together, Mm -hmm. Um, which I feel like there's a lot of things like that where in, whether it's because of what's posted on social media or spoken about in society, it's like things can only be this one thing like we can't be multi-dimensional you know but it's like mm-hmm. no we can have two competing feelings at the same time mm-hmm. and we can hold them together doesn't mean it's easy yeah but yeah both can be
1: true for sure yeah I um had actually this experience yesterday working on a very different aspect of my running and I did like 100 200 and 400 meter max efforts um, and I don't really have a benchmark to compare them with, but I was, you know, my first reaction was to be kind of like disappointed with my times because I was like, man, I really, I felt like I was really giving it my best effort. And I also don't feel like I went all that fast. Um, And I was talking to a friend about it and she was like, what if you gave it everything you had? How amazing would that be? If you really like, you know, all mental barriers aside, all, you know, whatever that you were able to like actually push to your physical maximum. That's just as incredible as achieving a certain time. And I was like, wow, why have I never (laughs) thought of it that way before? But I think, yeah, it just, it's a much more like, um, like gentler way, I think to view competition and, and running and things like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to touch on? My last question is going to be what would you recommend to someone who might be struggling or who relates to this or like anyone who might notice someone else who is maybe struggling?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think before that, I just – we mentioned it at the beginning, but I am not telling this story just to tell my story. I'm telling it to – uh, remind people that it's not unique and it's not, you know, it's not like a one-off thing. Um, and there are, I, you know, I've been really, really lucky to, to catch things and to get medical care eventually and, and all of that. But, um, I I mean, this stuff can really be life altering. Um, Mm -hmm. I, you know, and some of that remains to be seen. Like I know that underfueling can lead to like a loss of bone density. And that means like increased risk of breakage when you're older. And um, so there's just a lot to consider about, you know, you might not be seeing all the impacts right now, um, but it is, you know, it can be a deadly, um, a deadly path to go down.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think maybe a good way to wrap this up is, well, one, some of the Symptoms that you noticed when you suspected red s were the loss of period fatigue, irritability, am I missing any Those are like um, the big ones, right
1: yeah, those are the big ones. I think the g i issues were uh, yes, very much tied to that um, I you know and the injuries um, yeah. like I mentioned the stress fracture more in detail, but I also had a lot of like muscular and tendon stuff as well,
0: yeah Any um, ones that
1: didn't didn't. Fully disrupt training, but like right, right, certain days, yeah, um,
0: yeah. So I think those were those were the big things that that I noticed. Yeah. So if you're listening and you're like, could this be me? Maybe keep some of those in check. Um, mm-hmm. We don't really have much advice for the medical system. <laughs> keep advocating for yourself. I would say is the advice <laughs> that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I would say, and you probably agree. I'm guessing. Uh don't give up. Things can get better. Do what you can control. Mm-hmm. Clara's living proof. You can turn it around. <laughs> and there's many other living proofs too. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to reach out or follow you, where can they do so? Yeah.
1: Um I am mostly on Instagram um at CCC underscore adventuring. Um, and I, I post a lot of my run stuff there.
0: Um. yeah, that's probably the best way. Cool. Uh. Well, thank you so much, Clara, for coming on sharing your story. I know this was not the easiest conversation to have, and I really appreciate your vulnerability and just like being open with everyone because like you're saying, this isn't a unique story. A lot of us relate, uh, have similar stories. So I think you sharing will hopefully encourage others to share. And the more that we all share, the more we can normalize getting better and de-normalize <laughs> the things that were previously normalized like losing your period restricting your eating getting yeah. smaller to get faster that, that kind of thing yeah yeah
1: well yeah i mean thank you so much for for having me on and my my hope is that you know if somebody didn't know something before they they know it now or at least curious to find out so
0: yeah. And, yeah, if you have any feedback on this episode, you can give it to me, too. If you don't want to give it directly to Clara, (laughs) uh, I'm on Instagram at coachingcluts, or you can email me at kelly at coachingcluts.com. And, yeah. Thanks again, Clara. Thank you. (laughs)